in a series uh, through the book of Exodus, and uh, we're studying the Exodus in the Old Testament. Did you know that the Exodus is the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament? It's the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament. Um, In fact, Jewish people even today will look back, Orthodox Jewish people will look back to the Exodus as the model for how God saves his people. And all of it points forward to Jesus and how he saves us. So that's how that we're studying it through that lens, seeing, uh, looking forward uh, from that to how Jesus saves us. So uh, let me pray. And then we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter four this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that you do save us, that you do redeem us, that um, everything in the Old Testament points forward to the cross. Everything in the New Testament reminds us of the cross and points us forward to your uh, soon return. And remind us of the truth of how you save us. And and specifically this morning that in saving us, you promise to be with us every step of the way. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Instead, Holy Spirit, would you come and work in us and change us to be more like Jesus? We pray all of this, Jesus, through you. Amen. Well, today we pick it up in Exodus chapter 4. And we enter back into the text uh, in the middle of Moses' encounter with Jesus at the burning bush. Now, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you're going, what are you talking about Jesus at the burning bush? I don't, I don't remember that. Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 3, where the burning bush shows up and Mo- appears to Moses, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses through a burning bush. Well, I would contend to you, and I could be wrong, and there's smarter people than me that disagree with me, but this is just where I land. I'm not going to argue about it because I could be wrong, but this is what I believe is true, that when you see the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh in the Old Testament, that ultimately that is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus is eternal, and he didn't just start to exist when he was born in a stable, right? Uh, He's always existed, and he shows up multiple times in the Old Testament, and I believe this is one of them. And when you get to verse 4 of chapter 3, it says that uh, the Lord spoke to him from the bush. So it goes from just being a messenger to actually God speaking in the bush, and I believe this is Jesus. So Jesus is appearing to Moses at the burning bush. And I want to take a little bit of time, since we're kind of picking it up mid-story or mid-event of what's happening, to just review where we were a couple weeks ago in Exodus chapter 3. And we saw Jesus call to Moses. And there's a few things that are consistent with God's call on people's lives. The first thing he does is he calls you to follow him. He calls you to become a Christian, to put your trust and your faith in Jesus. In fact, everyone is called to come to him and to believe. In other words, to become a Christian. Acts chapter 17, uh, when they were preaching, they said the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And they go on to say that that repentance involves turning in faith to Jesus Christ. Everyone is commanded to do this. And, And Paul tells us in Romans that if you do this, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross for your sins and God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Like that's the beginning and end of what it means to become a Christian. Put your faith in Jesus, not get yourself all cleaned up and then come to Jesus. No, come to Jesus with all your junk and he cleans you up. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. And everyone is called to repent and turn to Jesus in faith, but not everybody responds, do they? But those who do respond, after Jesus calls them to himself, everyone who responds and believes, the next thing he does every single time is he sends them on mission. Now, the one exception potentially I can find to this in the Bible is the thief on the cross who comes to Jesus in faith on the cross, right? So how's he gonna be sent by Jesus on mission? But, but in a sense, he still was sent because what's he do? He witnesses to the other guy hanging on the other cross. How, why don't you turn to him too? After you're called to Jesus, if you respond, listen, you're a missionary, man. Like you are sent on mission. It doesn't matter who you are or if you get paid to do it, that's your role. You're sent on mission by Jesus. In fact, in John 17, he said, as you sent, he's praying for us. He says, as you sent me into the world, Father, I've also sent them. And even specifically here in John 20, this will be on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. As the father sent me, I'm sending you. Well, Jesus was sent, it tells us in, John tells us in 317 that God didn't send the son in the world to judge. In other words, to bring condemnation on people, but that the world might be saved. He was sent to love people. And that's our mission, right? That's our mission statement as a church. We're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. That's why we have this big, huge sign on the front of the building that says, you are loved because we want people to know both on a Sunday morning and as we go out during the week that they're loved by us and they're loved by Jesus. And so they should follow him. Amen. Everyone who responds, Jesus sends them out. So he calls you, then he sends you, but there's another piece to it. He also promises to go with you. He promises to go with. He goes with everyone he sends. And in Matthew 28, uh, the sum of the matter, he, was, he, he gave the, the great commission, go make disciples of all nations. And at the very end, he says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus sends you on mission. And, and what we saw in Exodus chapter three is that Jesus through the burning bush was sending Moses to go back to Egypt, to go to Pharaoh, and to ask for God's people to be released. That was the mission he was sent on. And we saw in chapter three that Jesus promised to be with him. So he called to Moses out of the burning bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, here I am. He responded. Then Jesus said, okay, now you're gonna go to Pharaoh and rescue my people. And I'm gonna be with you every moment of it. Everybody Jesus calls, he sends, and he goes with. And so that's where we pick it up now in chapter four. So for you and for me, when Jesus sends you, we're gonna see Moses raises doubts. It's okay to raise your doubts. It's okay to raise your doubts. It's okay when, when Jesus sends you on mission to be afraid. It's okay. It's okay to have some concerns. It's okay to, to be fearful. It's okay to doubt. And it's certainly okay to raise them. See, Moses had doubts after Jesus called him from the bush and after he sent him, which by the way, it's because of Moses' doubts that Jesus promised to go with him. 
See, I think if you raise your doubts, Jesus, you'll, you'll, you'll sense even more uh, Jesus' promise to go with you. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, the Lord said, Surely to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And he goes on in verse 10, he says, I will send you to Pharaoh. And Moses reply in chapter 3, verse 11, he said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Don't you know what I did 40 years ago, Lord? I, I murdered a man. And then I ran, I ran away and I hid like a coward. And I've been uh, wasting my life here in the desert, it feels like now for 40 years. Who am I that you're gonna send me now? I'm 80 years old, who am I? And then God's response was, yeah, but Moses, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And he raises more doubts and, and God, again, I'll be with you. And we get to chapter four and we're in the midst of Moses making these arguments and raising his doubts to God. And initially as Moses does this, you're gonna find out it seems to be okay with God that Moses raises his doubts. In fact, he answers his doubts very kindly and very plainly. Look at chapter four, verse one. That's where we pick it up today. Then Moses answered, uh, you know, God said, tell them I am has sent you. And Moses answered, but behold, Lord, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they'll say, uh, the Lord didn't appear to you. Moses, what are you talking about? That's, that's craziness. I wonder, do you ever feel that way? I do. Like, you know you're supposed to go speak into a situation. You know you're supposed to witness about the gospel to someone. And you, you reason in your head, but, but Lord, don't, I don't think I'm even gonna do that because they'll never believe. They'll never believe me. Yeah, it's changed me, but they're not gonna believe that it has anything to do with you. I, I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut. That's Moses here, isn't it? He, he says, uh, they'll say the Lord didn't appear to you. Come on. What a joke. Come on, Moses, really? Now, is that a legitimate doubt? It's, it's a totally legitimate doubt in my mind because I feel the same ones all the time. How about you? I think it's a legitimate doubt Moses has. How, how are they gonna believe me? Well, there's other examples of people having doubts in the Bible. How about Ananias in Acts chapter nine? Ananias in Acts chapter nine, uh, Saul, who becomes Paul, but at this time he's still Saul, still Saul, that's kind of a tongue twister. Uh, he had been persecuting God's people and he was on his way to Damascus in order uh, to, to kill people who are following Jesus and bring others back as prisoners to Jerusalem. And on his way there, Jesus appears to him. He calls Paul and then he sends him to continue on mission, right? And as he gets to Damascus, he can't see. And then God appears to Ananias, a man in Damascus, a follower of Jesus. And he says, Ananias, um, I want you to go to a street called Straight, to Straight Street. There's a guy there in this house by the name of Saul and you're to go to him, lay your hands on him and uh, commission him for the gospel. And now if you're Ananias, you had heard of Saul. Saul was a terrorist, man. Like he was, he was known for killing and torturing and persecuting Christians. Think ISIS, right? 
some guy from ISIS is in town and God appears to you and says, hey, I want you to go pray for him. Go see him. Tell him you're a Christian and pray for him. Tell him about Jesus. You're like, nah, really? That's what Ananias does. He says, but don't you, don't you know this, this man, Lord, he, he's been persecuting your people all over the place. Are you sure you want me to go to him? And God says, yes, go. I'll show him how much he must suffer. I'll be with you, go. And he goes. Ananias had doubts. He raised them. And then God assured him, yeah, go. I'll be with you. Uh, another example in the Bible, a young guy by the name of Gideon. Do you know, some commentators believe when this takes place, Gideon is in his early teens, maybe junior high age. Don't know that for sure, but there's many who seem to think that. It says in, in Judges chapter six that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Angel of the Lord, who is that? Jesus. So Jesus comes to Gideon and, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, the Lord is with you. Oh, mighty man of valor. He speaks an identity to him. And I'm, in, I'm still in verse 12. It's not on the screen. Uh, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. He gives him an identity to this junior high boy, potentially. And Gideon said, Lord, please, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? He starts recounting his circumstances and how bad they are. They were being persecuted and attacked. And, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And then the Lord, Jesus turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did, do, I, do not I send you, he said to Gideon. And then uh, Gideon said, please, Lord, how, again, he raises his doubts, right? How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm, I'm the least in my father's house. He raises his doubts. And then what does Jesus say? The Lord said to him, but behold, I will what? I'll be with you. He calls, he sends, and he goes with. And we've seen Ananias raise his doubts, Gideon raised his doubts, but every time God assures them of his presence. We've seen Moses raise his doubts. I wonder what do you suppose will happen next? God will assure him of his presence. We see other people in the Bible, the father of the boy with the unclean spirit. He comes to Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if, if you can, really? All things are possible for one who believes. And then the father of the boy says in verse 24, oh Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Even the apostles in Luke chapter 17 they said to the Lord, increase our faith. Help us trust you more. It's okay. Listen, it's okay to raise your doubts when God sends you. Do you have some? You're a little nervous, a little concerned, a little afraid. He can take it. He knows. Tell him. Bring it to him. Over and over people do in scripture. Moses did here. And, and you can raise your doubts because he is patient and he is willing to answer. You can raise your doubts to God because he's patient with you. He's willing to answer you. See, uh, look at his continued patience now with Moses. He was patient, we saw it already with Ananias, with Gideon, with the father of, of the boy with the unclean spirit, with his disciples. He'll be patient with you. He's patient with Moses. The Lord said to him, 
after Moses had said, how will they believe, you know, that, that you even appeared to me? The Lord said to Moses, Moses, what's that in your hand? I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's a staff. Well, going forward, uh, Moses' staff will be a symbol of God's presence going with him all the time. And a, a reminder that God's going to work what he said he was going to work in and through Moses, just like he promised. And then God said to Moses in, in verse three, he said, um, take your staff and throw it on the ground. So, so Moses obeyed, didn't he? He threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses said, wow. No, it says Moses ran from it, which is exactly what I would have done. How about you? Moses ran from it. It's a pretty logical response, it seems like, to me. After Moses runs, very uh, apparently afraid, the Lord said to Moses, hey, Moses, look, um, put out your hand. Look, look, I did this. Now, now, trust me. Put out your hand and catch it by its tail. I kind of wonder how long it took Moses to kind of inch up and then jump back. You know, can you see it? But eventually, to Moses' credit, look, he he obeys. So so he put out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. And then God goes on to tell him why to do this. He said, see, you do this so that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Remember Moses' complaint? How are they going to believe that you actually appeared to me? And God's like, well, do this sign. It'll prove to them that I appeared to you. That they may believe. And also, so who else could believe? Not just the people, but who else needs to believe right now? Moses does. Again, the Lord said to him, uh, because God knows everything. He knows that even in doing that, there'll be some people who still won't believe. So the Lord said to him again, put your hand now inside your cloak. Literally in the Hebrew, it just says, raise your hand to your chest. But the most common way to translate it is like, put your hand inside your cloak. So he may or may not have actually done that, but likely he did. I think that's the sense. And so Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it says his hand was leprous like snow. Now, this is hard for us to imagine or understand because we don't see leprosy on a day-in, day-out basis. If you ever get to come to India with me, uh, you'll, you'll get to see people with leprosy. But likely the leprosy, uh, leprous in the Bible often refers to a variety of different skin diseases. What would that have been like for us? I wonder, maybe put your hand in your cloak and pull it out and all of a sudden it's uh, pale and crusty with eczema or it's full of measles or shingles or chicken pox. I mean, he puts it in, pulls it out, and all this disease. And this would have been a big deal back then, right? Because uh, if there was disease, medicine was nowhere near as advanced as it is today. So God had commands, if somebody is diseased, uh, cast them out until they heal so that everybody doesn't get sick, right? They would have been afraid of that. And in fact, there were many other gods of that day who uh, uh, people worship that uh, they believed would heal them from their sickness. And, but, but my guess is that this was so severe, it, Moses would have pulled this out and be like, what God could heal anyone from this? 
And then what does God say to Moses? He says, um, then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak now. So he puts it back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, verse seven, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. What God could do that except for who? The Lord. See, if they don't believe you throwing your staff down and it turning into a snake, maybe they'll believe in my healing power to heal you in an instant. And then maybe they'll believe. But verse eight again, if they'll still not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign. Uh, Verse nine, excuse me. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, this would have been a sign more so to the Egyptians than to the Israelites. And you'll see that when we get there, it echoes or foreshadows, excuse me, the first plague of the, the Nile being turned to blood. And it was really an attack on Israel's gods. They found all their life and they, they, their worship in the Nile River. And God would turn it to blood. But, but all that to say, he gives him three signs after he raises his doubts. And this isn't the first time Moses has raised his doubt. This is actually uh, the third when he says, uh, but, but they won't believe that I actually saw you. And God gives him three signs. He's incredibly patient, isn't he? He's willing to answer. Listen, when Jesus sends you, it's okay to have some doubts. And it's okay, it's, it's right to raise them to God. He is patient. He's willing to answer you just like he did Moses. And look, Moses continues to raise his doubts. Verse 10, but, so after these signs, but then Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Some, some believe maybe he had some kind of a stutter. Other believe maybe it's a language barrier of him going back to Egypt. Whatever it was, there was something that Moses was very, very insecure about in his ability to communicate. Now, on a personal level, I can relate to this in some ways because for me, like uh, I, I've told some of you this, I can get up and talk to everybody. I don't have a problem with that, but I can't always just talk to anybody. And some of you, you can talk to anybody but if you were up here and you had to talk to everybody, it'd be a disaster, right? And, and for whatever reason, I, like if somebody comes at me with a ton of emotion, I, I'm like Moses, like I, I'm not eloquent. I'm, I'm unable to speak. I just, I get frozen in my ability to respond sometimes. Now, Hannah's told me that's probably God's grace to me so that I don't mouth off and get myself in trouble, <laughs> which I think is probably true. Because then I think about what I wanted to say, you know, 10 minutes later. Um, but I, I can resonate with it. Can you resonate with that maybe in your own way? Something you know about yourself that you go, oh, I'm not fill in the blank. I'm terrible at blank. And I've, I've just, I've always been that way and it's never going to change. So I, I can't follow. I can't do this, Lord. Maybe it's not speech. Maybe it's something totally different for you. But then the Lord said to him, and again, he doesn't seem to be angry yet. He's he's patient with him. The Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? 
See, in some ways, though, he is gently rebuking him because Moses, in saying that I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to me, is, is kind of him saying, God, why'd you make me this way? I've always been this way. And now you're calling me? Why, why didn't you just like change me here in the last 15 minutes as we've been together? Why didn't you just fix that? And, and Moses is, is doubting, but he's complaining and he's, he's getting up to the edge, isn't he? And God kind of gently rebukes him. He says, Moses, uh, who, who made man's mouth? Who made your mouth? And in fact, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's interesting here to me that God clearly takes credit not only for Moses' abilities, but his disabilities. He makes, he says, he makes some mute. He makes some who are deaf, some who can see, but some who are blind. And both uh, the abilities he gives and the disabilities he gives or allows, whatever that is, he uses for his glory, doesn't he? See, uh, this was common in the New Testament. People thought if there was something wrong with you, and even in Moses' day, if there was something wrong with you, you must have sinned. You must have done something to anger God that he would make you like that. And in fact, the disciples, they, they passed by and uh, a man who had been blind from birth and some of the disciples asked Jesus after they walked by this man, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, he said, well, it wasn't that that man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And then he heals him. See, he, sometimes uh, your biggest weakness God has allowed in your life and even given to you so that as you trust him, he'll overcome that and use that for his greatest glory. The glory that maybe you wouldn't have ever trusted fully in him to work if you didn't have that weakness. See, so Moses objects and God says, well, I made you this way, Moses. Now, therefore, verse 12, go. And what's he promise again? What's Jesus promise? I will what? He calls, he sends, and he goes with. He says, behold, go now therefore, and I will be with your mouth. I'll teach you what you shall speak. Moses didn't even need to be an eloquent speaker. He just needed to be a reporter. God was gonna give him the transcript of everything he had to say. Just like Jesus told, told us, right? When, uh, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you're to speak or to say for what to say will be given to you in that hour, he tells his disciples. And I think he, he tells us too not to be anxious, but to trust him for it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, bring your doubts and fears and concerns to Jesus. He's patient and willing to answer. He, he welcomes them. Again, we see examples of this in the Bible too, right? How about, uh, how about Thomas? We see such an example that Thomas gets a nickname all the way until Jesus returns because of his doubts, doubting Thomas, right? I mean, maybe you have some doubts, at least you're not made fun of it for the rest of this age until Jesus comes back, you know, in every church around the world. Thomas was one of the 12. He was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came after his resurrection. So they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, you know what? I have doubts unless I, I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas. Sometimes I wonder in, in some of the texts of the Bible, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a very condensed version of everything that happened. John tells us that if, if everything was written that Jesus did, there wouldn't be books to contain it all. You know, what other dialogue potentially took place here? You know, if Jesus was like, hey, Tom, Thomas, I heard, I heard you might have a few doubts. I heard you might be anxious. Why don't you come put your finger here? Come see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He welcomed his doubts, didn't he? He patiently answered them completely. Peter tells us to cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. You can bring your doubts. Paul tells us not to be anxious about anything, but to take everything to the Lord in prayer. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life to trust him. See, Jesus calls, he sends, he goes with. He did that with Moses. And when he calls you, when he sends you, it's okay to raise your doubts. Uh, He's patient, he's willing to answer, but it's so much better that the sooner you obey and go, the better. The sooner you accept his response, his promise that he's going to be with you and you obey and you go. The sooner you do that, the better. Moses is going to have to learn the hard way. See, Moses doesn't exactly obey quickly. When we get to verse 13, we find out all of Moses' objections ultimately underlie this complete unwillingness on his part to go. Earlier in chapter three, when Jesus called to him from the burning bush, Moses said, here I am, here I am, right? And, and now in chapter four, he says, here I am, send someone else. You know, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Moses is like, here I am, send someone else. Anybody else done that? I've done that. I've done that. See, but he said, oh my Lord, please just send someone else. This is a good, if you want to know how to get God angry, here's how. After all of his patience and explaining and promising to be with you, continue to reject him. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And not like a sinful anger, but a a righteous anger, right? He said, well, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, Moses. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I'll teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. See, God gets angry, but he doesn't let Moses off the hook, does he? Even, even when Moses pushes it to the point of just willfully disobeying, God, God still has a call on his life. He's like, okay, look, you're not off the hook. You're still gonna go. I'll make some concessions, but you still have to go. I called you, now I'm sending you, and I will be with you. You know, what's curious, so I wonder, 
I said a few weeks ago, Moses really points forward to Jesus, and Jesus is a greater Moses. And one of the similarities between the two of them is that Moses here is going to have to go somewhere he doesn't want to go. Well, Jesus in the garden has to go somewhere he doesn't want to go. And Moses, when he's called to go somewhere he doesn't want to go, he voices and raises his concerns and his objections, doesn't he? Did you know Jesus did the same? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, why is it Moses got rebuked for saying, hey, send someone else, but Jesus doesn't get rebuked for saying, if it's possible, just take this away. Well, it's an attitude of the heart, isn't it? And Jesus is a greater Moses because Moses ultimately underlying that was this unwillingness to follow. Here I am, send someone else. Jesus, though he had doubts and humanly speaking, he was fearful, rightfully so. He voiced and raised his concerns to the father, but then he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he still followed somewhere he didn't want to go. Friends, when Jesus sends you, it's okay to raise your doubts, but he's patient, he's willing to answer you, but the sooner you obey and go, the better. If he's called you, he's sent you. The only question left here is, will you go? And if you go, who will be with you? You can trust him. Amen. Let me pray. We're going to sing and call it a morning.